0: This episode does bring up some quite heavy topics such as suicide and disordered eating. If anybody who listens to this needs support or any family members or friends, please call Lifeline 131114. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason.
1: And I'm Maddie.
0: And this is Making Sense of Chaos.
1: Brock, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, you can really just start anywhere.
2: Oh, well, I guess myself in as quick a snapshot as possible. Um, I'm a former AFL player, you know, carved out um, an 11-year career uh, for two clubs, I think 157 games um, in total. And then I guess my experience of, of sort of leaving football um, and I guess entering the real world, you could call it, was, uh, was a really challenging one. I had a lot of issues that I suffered from in silence um, when I played footy, you know, mainly being sort of depression, uh, anxiety and uh, bulimia. Um, and I really tried to uh self-medicate um and you know sort of deal with deal with those issues through alcohol um Mm. and illicit drug use um and you know it got to a point where i was uh i was really unwell and you know i was uh struggling and, and i tried to take my own life um and uh i ended up um in the melbourne clinic a number of times um, and, you know, eventually got to a point where, uh, you know, I was um, happy and healthy and, you know, now I'm at a stage in my life where, you know, I'm, I'm about to uh, get married. I have a 14-month-old daughter. Um, we have another one on the way, June, July. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a hell of a roller coaster ride for me. Um, but, you know, for, for where I am now and what I have now, Um, it was well and truly all worth it. Mm,
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, see, Brock, I was actually listening to a few of the other podcasts that you've done and something you said in one of them uh, really stuck out to me. Um, You said that when you're in the depths of, you know, the the darkest times while playing footy, you you often just um, kind of diminished it to yourself and said, oh, just stop being a drama queen, Brock.
2: Yep. Yeah, I look. I think it's you know that was that was definitely my attitude, and a lot of that you know my upbringing. We were a very blue collar family. Like we, we never complained. We just whatever obstacle or issue was put in front of us, you know, there was never an excuse. We just worked through it. Like mental health wasn't something even in within my family's vocabulary. Um, even though a lot of my you know, dad's side of the family, you know, have a lot of um, mental health issues, but it was just, you know, we were a, a really tough, hard-nosed blue-collar family, and to admit any type of weakness, especially of, of mind or, of, or or something that's that's wrong with us in the brain, was just was just a no-go zone. So, um, you know, throughout you know those years, and I prided myself on being um, a tough footballer, and you know, I've I, prided myself on being this strong reliable independent individual that didn't you know didn't need help and saw it as a huge sign um you know of weakness to put my hand up and say you know what i'm struggling i'm not right you know i need some help but i think also brought in broader terms you know as a society i think sometimes we actually when someone's actually feeling down or someone's not quite feeling right you know we tend to try and cheer them up by put you know putting things into perspective and we say oh you know it's, you know look what's going on in you know a topical example is ukraine you know look what's going on in ukraine at the moment you haven't got it as bad as those people it's very dismissive of people's problems um, and it's it, it, it's almost like the attitude of well Uh, it's a competition and unless you're the person in the world who's suffering the most and who's got it the worst of the most, it's like, well, you're not deserving of any empathy, you're not deserving of any compassion, you don't deserve any love because someone else out there has got it worse off than you and I I don't think that people deliberately do that. I think they're genuinely just trying to cheer them up and actually give them a bit of perspective on things but at the same time, we should never let anyone or ideally we don't want to, um, diminish people's problems just because there are worse people off out there. So I guess that was a big attitude of mine as well. It was always, you know, someone's got it worse off out there. So stop being a sook and just get on with things. So it was sort of, you know, a double-edged sword for me.
0: Mm. Seems to be a bit of like a suffering hierarchy a little bit. If, if you're, you're suffering in peak form, people pay attention. If it's mm. mild or it's sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't look, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have that intensity or that, that level of um, connectiveness. People can't relate to it, then yeah. it's dismissed.
2: Yeah, well, you know,
0: we just need to be a little bit more
2: aware of that when we are, um, you know, trying to listen to someone's problems or trying to hear someone's problems. And I think most people are genuinely genuinely coming from a right place, and they're just trying to make the person feel better. But a lot of the time when people are talking about their issues, they don't want advice. They don't want people to fix their problems. They just want to be heard. And they just want someone to sit there and listen to them and be an ear for them. Um, and, and that was, you know, certainly one of my experiences as well, In particularly with, with the males in my life. I think as men, we genuinely just try and fix things or we try and come up with solutions. You know, it's like, have you, have you tried this? Or maybe you should do this. Or why don't you just stop? Doing that, and you know my experience of that was was extremely frustrating you know because I was like you know you 're not listening to me i 'm not coming to you for advice i 'm not coming to you for you to come up with a solution. I just want you to sit there and listen listen to what my problems are and try and be as empathetic as possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and walk us through that like imagine there's sort of you had those two parallel worlds going on at the same time where you were playing footy um, an incredible standard and then at the same time your mind was just you know, overwhelming chaos. If you can maybe take us back to that and how that felt, how you went through that day-to-day.
2: Yeah, it was just a real juggling act um, and it was just, you know, extreme highs and extreme lows and, you know, you would – you were able to sort of put on an act only for so long. So you know, I would come into the club some days, and I would just feel like absolute crap. You know, I didn't want to be there. Um, I just wanted to be home. You know, tucked up in bed, curled up in a ball. Um, you know, just with my door closed and just and, and isolated. But you know, uh, you know, some days you just managed to drag yourself out of bed, and then as soon as you got to the club, you was like, God, you know, here we go. Like I don't want to. I don't want to. You know. Uh, I don't want to complain. I don't want to sook. I don't want to see people, you know, I don't want to let them in. I don't want to let them know how I'm actually feeling. So you put on this, this face and, you know, so it was just this, um, you know, constant facade or this act of, you know, I'm happy and I'm jovial and I'm up and about, you know, I'm a, you know a bit of a larrikin and cracking jokes and, and all that type of stuff. But there's only so much, you know, you can do with that. It, 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 it's, so draining of your energy that you you got to the point where I got home and I would just either go to my room or I'd lie on the couch it would all depend on whether I was living by myself or living with friends if I was living by myself I'd be on the couch if I was living with housemates I'd be you know in my bedroom um and that's when you know I would you know screen calls or you know not you know, not reply to to invites from teammates. You know, to go out for dinner with them because I one, I was just so drained from the, the facade and the act that I was putting on um, on a day to day basis, and two that I was just you know I, I was you know depressed or I was or I was anxious or I was just I hated myself to the point where I didn't think I was deserving of friends or I didn't think I was deserving of company or if I, I made a mistake, you know, my punishment to myself was, you know, to isolate myself because, you know, I was this, this idea of being a good person to me was perfection, you know? So anytime I made a mistake or said something wrong or, you know, did anything like that, then it was, you know, it was such a uh, a negative way of looking at myself.
0: And, and so Brock, I'm I'm an avid AFL footballer, so so. Followed you from the outskirts and um, sort of your move from sort of uh, Melbourne, to sort of Carlton, um, and you've spoken about that in previous podcasts. When, when did when did the when did the doubt or the or the fear or the anxiety or the, or the general suffering start?
2: Look, I think um, one thing that I learned when I left footy was that I had no self worth, and my self worth is attached to what I was doing. So, um, you know. Early on in my career, you know, I started, I think I played 10 games in my first year and then 20 games in my second. And then, you know, I think 06 was probably my best year and I really announced myself to the football world. But then the following year, um, I got injured in round one. I broke my foot and I missed a, a significant period of time, you know, maybe eight weeks or, you know, maybe close to half a season, uh, something, something around that sort of time. And without footy, I felt completely worthless um, as a person and And that was when things probably really started um, to unravel you know for me because that feeling of being worthless and feeling like I didn't have any type of um, value to my friends or to my family or to society um, was extremely um, you know scary, and it wasn't a nice feeling at all, so I guess um, the anxiety from then on was, you know, or, you know, what happens if I get injured again? Or what happens if, you know, footy stops tomorrow? Or what happens if I haven't got football? Suddenly I'm this worthless, useless piece of shit human being who doesn't really have a place anywhere um, in society. And I guess that's where, which probably coincided when my drinking started to get really bad. Um, Because one, it was a coping mechanism for me. And that was something that I saw, Growing up, you know, as I said, we were a very old school family. So when, um, you know, we got together for family occasions or when I was at the footy club, you know, most of the males in my family drank to excess. So that was my normality in terms of how guys drank. They didn't have a couple of beers. We drank to excess. So, um, and so for, for a period of time while I didn't have footy, that became a coping mechanism. But because I was such a lunatic on the drink and quite wild, I became a little bit popular within sort of social circles. So that in itself became a source of self-worth for me because I was quite popular when I was doing that. Um, So, you know, and then, you know, eventually, you know, I got back playing footy um, and, you know, I was able to sort of control my drinking um, a little bit. But then the following year, I had a really significant injury. I, I, I snapped... Uh, or tore the syndosmosis ligament, um, you know, off my, uh, off my two leg bones and had to have it reattached. So again, the cycle started again. And then when alcohol started to lose its, you know, its effects on me, that's when I really started to turn, um, to illicit drugs, which I dabbled with within the past, you know, when I was a little bit younger, um, you know, just to, you know, I'm, I'm a very curious person. You know, I always like to sort of, you know, to try things. But then when, when I found that alcohol had lost its, you know, its, its, its effect on, you know, um, helping me cope with a lot of my struggles, then drugs, you know, drugs became my, my sort of choice. And, you know, from there, it just, it just snowballed and snowballed. And, um, you know, by the time I it, uh, it got to, you know, leaving footy, they were just proper. You know, habitual, ingrained habits that were that were just so hard to break. It took you know four or five years of four or five years of therapy to really undo. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, at, at that time, um, what what would you say your days looked like? Walk us through a typical day.
2: Um, yeah. So it would be, I mean, get up, go to training, come mm. home. You know, either isolate myself or. Um, you know, if I was, in a, I was in a good mood, I had, you know, really sort of fluctuating moods, which which in the end I, I got diagnosed with bipolar in 2019 um, by my psychiatrist, um, which, look, uh, to be honest, I'm not exactly 100% certain that that diagnosis is correct. But for the time, I think, you know, it, it, I, I think I was more so just a very black and white or all or nothing person which might explain, you know, the, the 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 sort of the violent mood swings. But uh, you know, so I'd go to training and either I'd come home and lie on the couch by myself and, and just stay there for the rest of the night and then, you know get up the next morning and, and, and go to training again. But but by the time sort of the weekends would come around, when my sort of my off field antics got to the, its worst, you know, if we played a game on a Friday night, it would be, you know, more times often than not, I'd be out after the game. Um, and then, you know, I'd go to recovery the next morning and then after recovery was done, we usually had the rest of the weekend off and that was, you know, my time to to shine, you know, off field. And, you know, a lot of the time I'd I'd end up, you know, I'd go to bed at 2 or 3 on a Monday morning and get up, you know, at 6 or 7 and go to the footy club and, you know, attempt to train. And, you know, that pretty much was, you know, a big part of my routine for probably the last, you know, year or two
0: of my career. That was that. So that was at Carlton the last few years before.
2: Yeah, well, I, I yeah, when, when things got quite, um, you know, bad for me, weren't my time at Carlton because you know I, I finished up at Melbourne at the end of two thousand and nine. Um, I really felt like you know the source of my unhappiness was Melbourne, the Footy Club, and I just felt like I really needed a fresh change, Um and that a that a trade was going to do me the world of good, but you know anyone who's had any experience with you know with problems or issues of unhappiness knows that it's not you know external sources that are the, that are the, the problem it's you know it was certainly an, an internal thing but you know i got to carlton and you know i i trained like an absolute madman that off season you know i had you know i gave myself two weeks of rest but then i just i just pounded the pavement and i just ran and ran and hit the gym and i i came to carlton i just wanted to make a good impression and um I won the time trial on day one um, and set a really good example. But you know, by the time I got to round four or five, my body was just—it was knackered—and I broke down. Um, and you know, I, I, I barely played. You know, for the rest of the year. And I think by the time the year finished, my I had um, uh, both knees done twice and my ankle operated on um, again. So, in terms of my fresh start, you know, um, you know uh, this. Planned new start of you know getting a re- rejuvenated and, and getting a new lease on life just just backfired spectacularly um, and that made you know while I spent so much time out of footy that year again without football, I felt worthless and you know I think my drinking and, and drug use that was when it really got bad um, and then
1: where did the um, bulimia come in
2: yeah, the bulimia came in uh that that, um, that off season so I uh I'd always struggled with with leg speed um early on in my career it wasn't that too bad I was okay off the mark uh, but then all the injuries just it just uh you know um had its effect um and took its toll and um my ankle was my ankle injury was really bad and, and after that my leg speed just diminished um you know something shockingly and um, I, the coaches um, came to me, and they really thought it was about you know lo- losing losing weight was going to help me with my leg speed. But but that sort of had you know nothing to do with it. It was just the way that I was designed, and you know I've got a, a tiny little ass. So anyone who knows anything about sort of speed, or you know when you look at it, the, the the fastest race horses, they're usually the ones who've got the biggest, most powerful hind quarters. So I really just because of my body design, struggle with leg speed. That had nothing to do with weight. But they came to me and said, you know, we're going to – we think that you should uh, – you would benefit from from losing a few more kilos. Um, and I already, like, re- was re- really quite anal with what I ate. Like, I naturally weighed 90 kilos and I played at 85. So, like, you know, I was really, like, very strict with what I ate. So to lose another three kilos, I was like, shit, like, this is going to be extremely hard work. But because I was at the the point in my footy career where it was like, well, you can't have another couple of years like you did, you don't want to give the coaches any excuses not to pick you. So you've got to do it. And I just became like even more obsessed with food. And um, something that I've learned, you know, throughout my recovery was that extremism doesn't work well for me. So I just became obsessed and I built this narrative in my head that if I put on any weight or if I ate any junk food, I was going to put on weight and therefore the coaches weren't going to pick me and therefore I wasn't going to play AFL footy and therefore I was going to be worthless as a person. So it started by, you know, because I was so strict with what I was eating, I was you know, weighing everything, cutting every single bit of fat off, every bit of food, Um, that after four or five weeks of doing that, like I was going stir crazy and I was ready just to have some type of junk food or some type of treat, bit of sugar, any bit of chocolate, something like that. So. I would just binge. Like I would go and just gorge on, you know, a huge amount of junk food. And then afterwards I would feel so guilty about that, that I would go for a a 10K run or I'd go for a 15K walk. Uh, But after a while I was like, God, this is really time consuming. This is really having an effect on my energy levels, Um, you know, because during pre-season training, you're already doing a huge amount of work. So from there I was like, well, you know, how can I get rid of, with what I just ate um, uh, in the most quickest and efficient ways possible. So I started taking laxatives. Laxatives was the first sort of step, um, I guess, in my eating disorder journey. Um, and I would, uh, I got to a point where I was taking 50 laxatives at a time. I would buy a whole pack and I would put them in a cup and I would, you know, I would um, eat a, a shitload of junk food and then I would take the laxatives and then I would just be in the most extreme amount of pain, um, you know, for, for the next sort of 12. Uh, to 24 hours, and then you know when that got a bit too much, I discovered that I could just purge, you know, all my food, and um, you know it became, you know, probably a, you know, maybe a, a once a, a once a month thing to a once a fortnight thing to a once a week thing to a nearly a once a day thing, and it was usually at night, um, you know, because I was you know quite occupied you know, during the day, you know, and I I needed to eat breakfast, I needed to eat lunch, you know, know, training demands on us were quite huge. So I couldn't really do it then and there were too many people around, but at night time, that's when I would really do it. And it got to the point where, you know, I was just in this habitual um, routine of having dinner and then, but then going and buying 40, usually 30, 40, 50 bucks, maybe worth of, of junk food and eating it at
0: home, and then um, and then purging it up afterwards. And and the, the bulimia, inside the bulimia, so to speak, what what function did that play? Did that did that almost cover up um, some of the sort of symptoms associated with let's just say depression, anxiety, sort of the the day to day struggle um yeah well yeah
2: it usually consisted of you know because i was you know going out most weekends and you know um a lot of the time you know i wasn't planning on um using drugs but once i got a few drinks in me um Mm -hmm. that was when you know alcohol affects your decision-making process your risk or reward decisions you know your inhibitions are down so once I got a few drinks into me, it was like righto. Where are the drugs going? Oh, you know, I don't want this. Don't want the party to end. So usually, the early on in the week um, was consisted of me feeling like absolute shit and depressed and um, really low um, and really hard on myself. You know, because of, of what i would just engaged in over the weekend. And then, you know, during the week, that was when sort of my eating disorder, um, you know, became sort of at the forefront um, and really sort of took over my life. And you know, so that was sort of the cycle. You know, for me, for probably the next, you know, I'd probably say from sort of 2010, the end of 2010, probably toward, you know, probably 2016, you know, well, well after I, I sort of finished footing. Mm.
0: And the, the suicide attempt you mentioned previous, where did that, where was that in the context?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I started having, um, um, I started having um, suicidal thoughts probably around sort of 2010, Um, you know, they were just sort of, you know, quite fleeting and they would come and go. But I remember in, in 2011, you know, when I wasn't, when I wasn't playing and, um, you know, I, there was a real intention actually at at one stage, it was the middle of footy season. I wrote out a note, I locked myself in my room um, and there was a real intention there um, for me to do it. But I remember my dog, um, you know, scratching on the door and, you know, really trying to, to get in. And, and that was something that stopped me um, at the time. But, you know, that was probably the, the closest I got to, um, you know, before I finished, you know, playing footy. But I guess when I finished playing, that was when things got, you know, really bad and I, I you know, I fantasised about it. I thought about it, you know, almost on a daily basis for a good um, Two or three years and then, uh, you know, 2017, I was, I was putting so much pressure on myself to climb the corporate ladder, to succeed at uni, you know, because I was starting out at entry level positions, my self-worth was, was tied to that. So, I, I, I felt like I was a, a sort of a shit kicker in life, you know, because I was a junior analyst and I was a first-year uni student. So I was studying full-time, I was working full-time, I was playing footy at the time. I was putting all this pressure on myself to succeed. Um, And it got to the point one night where I I think I had three uni assignments due that week. I think I had four or five um, analyst reports for work due that week and I sat down. I'd been drinking all day at my sister's football grand final I'd gotten home. I'd, had, I'd gotten into a big fight with my partner at the time, um, you know, about my drinking. I was really trying to hide it, and, you know, pretend like nothing was wrong. But, you know, she saw right through that. Um, and then I went upstairs and I went to work on one of my uni assignments and I just sat there and I looked at my computer screen for 20 minutes and I just had nothing. And it just came to me. I was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. Like, like I'm, I'm sick of feeling like this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I cannot do life. Anymore. And I, I wrote out a note to my parents, um, you know, and I think, so, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, um, I'm sorry, but I just can't do this anymore. I'm sick of being who I am. And I, um, yeah, I, I, I attempted suicide. Um, I was very lucky that, you know, I was found um, when I was. And I spent the next uh, few days in ICU. It's um, at St. Vincent's Hospital. Um, and then the next sort of three or four days uh, in the general ward. Um, and then I checked myself in um, to the Melbourne clinic. And I guess, you know, that was my, my you know, my, um, I guess, not my first experience at suicidal thoughts, but definitely my first attempt. And it was my last, um, thankfully. But um, I still had sort of suicidal ideations for probably maybe 12 to 18 months um, after that until I really, until I really addressed the core of my issues, which was, which was my self-worth, um, and my, uh, my attitude towards myself and my self-compassion and my self-love.
1: Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing Brock. I mean, I, I can hear still the pain in your voice around going back there. And I imagine it's so difficult to, to think about yourself at that time. Um, I imagine your relationship to yourself at that time was was in a very different place to the relationship that you you have with yourself now as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I know. I, th- I think that's probably the big reason why I still get emotional about it is because I I I really find it hard to identify with how I was feeling at the time because I'm in such a good place now and I'm and I'm happy and I'm healthy. Um, you know, and I've got an amazing partner and amazing daughter and an amazing family and support network that I really struggle to identify with how I was feeling. And I, 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 I can't actually sort of put myself in that situation again. So when I, when I sort of get quite emotional about it, it's a real, um, you know, it's, a, it's because I just I feel so much for myself. At that time you know because of because of what I was going through and 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 how I was feeling and what i actually did i can't i can't actually imagine myself doing that right now, so for me to actually do that at that time or attempt to do that, you know says to me I was really hurting and really in a bad place um and you know that i could you know if i could could go back and, and you know and give myself a big hug you know um you know i would so that's certainly where that you know all those emotions um you know come from is that you know that 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 struggle to identify with who i was and where i was um, and how i was feeling at that time
0: and at that time so obviously you that the help seeking process or the, the suicide attempt in its way exposed you to yourself in many ways it, it it was the ultimate sort of attempt to seize the pain to to, to, stop, to stop the clog but with without that attempt you, you you know your life doesn't pan out the way it has yeah. or, or, ha, or or you know what role did it play
2: yeah well one of the one of the only sort of the truisms that i believe in life is that sort of everything happens for a reason so i mean that you know i you know, again, I I can't sort of reiterate and stress enough. I was so lucky that I was found, um, you know, when I was because I genuinely wanted to, to end my life. So I was very thankful and very grateful. Um, so I guess it got the ball rolling, but it was a very slow ball. Like I, you know, it's, it's hard for people who, have, who haven't been in this situation to understand. But after two or three weeks in the Melbourne clinic, I actually thought there was nothing wrong with me. You know, I learned about meditation, um, you know, and I thought my whole attitude towards myself and, you know, I've had three weeks off the alcohol and, you know, and drugs and, you know, it's, it's all going to be fine and I'll, I'll make some peripheral changes, you know. Yeah. I'll, I'll exercise a bit more. I'll get up and I'll meditate every morning. and And I just thought, you know, I was quite blasé about it. All. And I just thought, you know, no, oh, yeah, you know, I've done my time in the Melbourne clinic. That's it. I'm fixed. I'm good from now on. But, you know, habits take a long time, you know, to break. So it wasn't long, um, you know, before, you know, I was, you know, I was back drinking again and, and back sort of abusing drugs. And, um, you know, at the time I was in, a, it was in a relationship that I knew wasn't right for me. Um, and I knew that, you know, I, that I, I shouldn't be in this relationship, but I had a really hard time with the idea of, of breaking someone's heart or having that hard conversation or hurting someone's feelings. Um, so instead of having that hard conversation early on, I, you know, I made things worse by you know, trying to make it work and trying to see it out. And in the end, the situation became so untenable for me that I started cheating on my partner. Um, which just made things a hell of a lot worse. And in the end, I got, I got caught out um, and everything came to a head. Um, and then, you know, once all that did, you know, I just saw myself again as this really horrible, terrible person, you know, this person that, that had, had sort of loved, loved me and cared for me and literally saved my life. And this is how I've treated her. And I was back sort of in that mindset of, you know, you don't deserve to be here. You're an oxygen thief. You're a waste of space. You know, this is how you treat people that are good to you. And I ended up back in that space where I wanted to take my own life um, again. But, um, you know, thankfully, uh, I, you know, I, I came around to sort of seeing the light and I checked myself back in to the Melbourne clinic, um, did five weeks there, did a, a, an emotional well-being um program. Um again, you know, I was I wasn't nowhere near um better, but you know, there were there were gradual changes, you know, starting to happen. So I guess, you know, uh the the lesson is that, you know, um bad habits take time to unlearn and good habits take time, you know, good ones take time to actually become habitual. Um, but you know, me being as impatient as I was and me being a footballer and being in a profession or being a professional athlete where, you know, (laughs) you need results-based feedback pretty much straight away. Like if you're given something to work on, you need to work on it and get results within a week or two, you know, to be back in the team. So that was my expectation with my recovery was that, you know, oh, I I need to to get better in two weeks. I need to get better in, in two months. And it was just so unrealistic that I was setting myself up for failure. Um, and I was working in the stock market at the time and my, my psychologist put it to me in the best analogy he could have possibly done. And he said, when you look at a share price chart, how often do you see the share price just go up in a straight line, Northeast, never. He said there are peaks and troughs along the way, and that's how you need to approach your recovery. So once I sort of stood back and started to sort of, you know, look at the big picture, so to speak, and not get so down on myself when I had a setback. You know, if I went two months without having a drink or without having a bender and then I had one, it was like, you know what, hang on, you've actually gone two months this time where previous to that it was one month. So actually trying to look at it in a bigger overall, um, you know, picture. And, you know, as I said before, it, t- it took a proper, a good, you know, um, you know, long time since, you know, probably from, from seeing my therapist's Um, to actually getting in a position where I felt really well and happy and healthy, probably, you know, four years, at least four years.
0: Right. It's it's interesting, Brock. I sort of want to go back to what you mentioned about the relationship that you were in and trying to, um, I suppose, it sounds like it ate you up in many ways. It was consuming you, the fact that you, you knew instinctively it wasn't for you, but it was something that you were, when you, and you went down the cheating path. It was again looking for that way, that way out, that way to um, separate yourself from maybe your responsibility or maybe from the inevitable. Yeah, I, to be honest, I think at
2: the time, I mean, the, the things were so bad in our relationship that we just there was no sexual activity at mm-hmm. all, you know, at all. So, um, so I guess you know, I think initially that's where it sort of stemmed from. But I think you know, maybe subconsciously, you know, it was giving myself you know, a way out or, you know, a, a reason or that I wanted to get, you know, sort of found out. Um, so it would give me a, a genuine reason for it all um, to to end. But, I mean, the way that I was looking at it initially was, you know, if I break this girl's heart, if I break up with her, um, you know, and, and cause this big rift, then, then I'm a really bad person, mm. you know, for causing someone's feelings to be hurt or breaking someone's. Heart. So in my mind, I was justifying it by, you know, I'm I'm keeping her happy, when in reality that wasn't the situation. So there was no logic to my thinking mm-hmm. at all. There was no actual rationale. It was just so far, you know, uh, irrational. Um, and so illogical that I, you know, again, I was like, you know, how are you actually thinking like this? Like this just, you know, you've made problems so much worse. You've made the situation so much worse that, you know, having that hard conversation initially just would have saved so much pain, you know, mm. further down the line. But, you know, my, my way of thinking at the time was just, you know, completely irrational and of, and of, of someone who just, you know, wasn't really well.
0: Mm. And, and those hard conversations in general, you know, being in the, in the AFL system, how often do they actually happen, regardless of like, personal circumstances in yeah. the football club?
2: They happen all the time, you know what I mean? And, it, you know, as a, as a player, you have to learn to give feedback and you have to learn mm-hmm. to receive feedback. And it's, you know, at times it's quite brutal and quite honest, but it's all based around um, – performance. And, you know, I, I, as I said, I grew up in a very hot, uh, old school and, and blue collar type of family that, you know, my, my dad never pulled any punches. He always spoke his mind and he always told me how he felt. So that, you know, that was never an issue for me sort of giving or receiving feedback because it was all based on, you know, performance and the betterment of a player and the betterment of a team. But where I struggled with translating that um, or the parallels into a relationship was, you know, telling someone uh, honest feedback for performance was 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 different, you know, to, to giving someone honest feedback and, and breaking their heart. So, um, so that's that was the way that I looked at it. Um, um, and even though it was, you know, completely um, illogical and completely wrong, um, that was, you know, that was, was the time that was how I justified it. Mm.
1: Yeah, it strikes me as like I don't know. This is accurate or not, but it strikes me as avoidance of pain you know that, that's something you did in other contexts as well
2: yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I really struggled with you know one of the one of the um, the first things that I learned in in acceptance and commitment therapy is it's it's our emotions you know aren't the problem it's not our mm-hmm. feelings of sadness or our feelings of loneliness you know, everyone experiences those emotions those feelings it's how we deal with them and i i really struggled with with pain and i really struggled with sadness and i really I, could, I i wasn't very good at processing my emotions you know i would get so attached to them and so bogged down in them that that i had to try to avoid them as best as i possibly could um and, you know and i you know i think a lot of that was you know uh, you know, due to my upbringing, and you know, a, a lot of the things you know that I saw, um, and how you know members of my family r- responded to things. You know, we, we we didn't. You know, it was a. It was a sign of weakness to admit that you were sad. It was a sign of of, of weakness that you, you know to admit that you were you were lonely or that you were struggling or you know whatever. It just you know, as I said, we never complained no matter what was going on within our lives or you know no matter what was happening. You just never complained. So I never wanted to be seen as that type of person. You know? I'm, I'm not complaining that I'm sad. I'm not complaining that I'm anxious. You know, I just. You know, I wanted to avoid them at all costs because to me that was a sign of, of being tough or being a man or, you know, just being, uh, you know, a strong, independent person.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's to think of yourself at that age, um, seeing who you are now, it's so open about your struggles
2: Yeah, Um, yeah. it's yeah. I mean, it's it's like anything. I think you know. Sometimes you know a lot of us learn the hard way. Um, you know, experience is the greatest teacher and the greatest molder. You know, in life, and you know, I think you know is you know especially that older generation. You know, probably my father's generation. You know, vulnerability was seen as weakness. Mm. Um, but it's it's not until you actually practice. And go through the experience of embracing vulnerability and admitting, um, you know, how you're feeling or your struggles, that you actually understand that it's a, a complete opposite. It's actually a sign of strength. Um, and, you know, people can tell you that, uh, but until you actually experience it yourself, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole nother ball game.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, um, Brock, have you noticed any sort of ripple effect of that? Because I know you're pretty um, out there in, uh, in terms of talking about what's going on for you. Have you had people come forward to you and say they're struggling or?
2: Uh, look, I've had, you know, I've just had random conversations, you know, with with guys. Uh, there was one day a, a trainee came around to fix something at our house and, you know he sort of texted me afterwards, and you know we we had a little bit of back and forth and you know he just he opened up about you know he he listened to a podcast of mine, and it was very helpful mm. you know for him and um you know just you know and I think that you know for me just really reinforced. Um, the importance of just of just being open and, and being honest, um, and you know, I think I, I always spoke to my psychologist about you know once I felt like I was in a position where I felt strong enough and where I felt you know capable enough that you know I, I did want to speak publicly um, you know about my issues because it is such uh, a problem, in particularly in the in the male um, you know environment. I think you know we're overrepresented in the suicide numbers um you know where uh you know in particular when we're talking about you know eating disorders i think we're underrepresented in the numbers even though those figures are, are probably realistically higher so just being you know being in a in a you know a public figure and having the the platform and and having the resources to, to speak publicly um about that was something that i felt was was important to me but you know the the, the surprising thing for me has been um, the really sort of cathartic feeling um you know the experience of of, of um, you know of those feelings and and how how much of a big role it 's played in my healing as well and being you know being vulnerable on a bigger stage rather than just in my my inner circle and with my psychologist it really caught me um, by surprise, and I guess that was probably the last little piece you know, of my recovery journey um, that, that I didn't quite expect. Um, so that's been, a, I guess, a nice real sort of um, pleasant surprise um, as well. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, for a long time, you know, I built up this narrative in my head that, that talking about it was somehow going to emasculate me or it was somehow going to feel really bad talking to someone about my issues. But once you go you go and see a psychologist for the first time, and it's the best way to describe it for me is just going in and taking one big emotional dump um, and doing that. I, afterwards, I walked out and I was like, oh my God, you've been worried about this for so long? Like, how good do you feel yeah. right about now? So, and, you know, the next, I guess, progression for me was, you know, not waiting, you know, until, you know, uh, a week or two weeks until my psychologist, you know, actually talking about it to people within my, inner circle and my inner sanctum and, you know, the people close to my life. So, you know, if I was feeling, you know, a, a buildup of emotions on a day, I could talk to my partner about it or I could talk to my mum about it or, you know, I could talk to my sister about it. Um, so that was sort of, the, you know, the progression from there, I guess.
0: Mm. And it, when you are talking to the your loved ones about it, are you doing it for, from a, you know, uh, a dump perspective? Are you doing it to just get it out or are you, are you looking for some level of feedback or some sort of security within that
2: it's it's more so just to release Mm. um you know uh just you know things can get to a point where you know sort of they build up and you know again i still grapple at times with you know actually releasing emotions um and you know getting to the point where it's like hang on mate you've let this go on you know a bit long now um you know and you know for example my partner and i just had a really good chat um, the other day about things that are just starting to sort of bubble away. It, to her credit, she was the one that, that brought it up, but it was just, it was a really good. We sat there and we were just open. We were honest. Um, you know, we spoke about the things that were going on and it, it wasn't so much a result or a product of our feelings towards each other. It was just a product, you know, of the situation. You know, mm-hmm. she's back at work full time. I'm at work full time. You know, we're, we're juggling a, a 14-month-old She's pregnant again, you know, in June. So there's just so much going on that, you know, um, it was just really nice to stop and sit back and actually talk about it openly and honestly. And and from then on, we just felt so much better, both of us, about, you know, our relationship and about our our feelings um, towards each other because things were sort of building up and and sort Mm of bubbling away in the background
0: yeah nothing like a wholesome chat is it? Is that
2: no it's 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 great like you know i I can't recommend it you know to to people enough but it's it's yeah i mean it's a really delicate one because uh, you know as i touched on earlier in the show it's it's really hard for the people who are closest to someone who's hurting or struggling you know because they can see that but um, you, know, you can't really force someone to talk. You can't really force someone to go and get help. The only way someone's going to get better if it's driven internally. Like you can't force someone externally to to get well or, or, or to get better, and, and that's that's the hardest thing for the people closest, you know, to someone because it's like they can, you know, they can see them, you know, basically destroying their lives or destroying themselves or really struggling on a day to day basis. But unless that person's ready and willing to do it on their own accord, then, you know, I think the saying that comes to mind, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Mm. And that's pretty much the same with, you know, you can have, you, you know, you, you know, the, the plethora of resources around you, but if that person's not ready to get help, then, you know, it's for no
0: mm. mm. Cause it's, I mean, your story seems very similar to sort of a, a spiral in the sense that you had to sort of learn a few lessons Sort of repeat, and every time you did you know learn something you learned, you gained something from it, you know as you yeah. were going around and round. I suppose you know part of moving forward and being to have these open conversations in a, in a men's immense sort of forum do do we need an element of suffering, an element of acceptance of suffering to to know that sometimes that's the only way we can really sort of unleash unleash those conversations to unleash the beast inside, unleash the fears that we have.
2: Yeah, I think so. Like pain and suffering and, and, and negative emotions, you know, they all serve a purpose, you know, mm-hmm. that, that that we have them for a reason. They're actually there to protect us or they're there to, to warn us. Or So I think, you know, there's, there's almost like this, you know, negative connotation, you know, in... Uh, in society that you know that 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 anger is a bad thing or or sadness is a bad thing, or you know anxiety or nervousness you know is a bad thing they actually they serve a purpose and I think you know you have to go through a, a bit of shit and you have to go through a bit of pain and you have to go through a bit of um, you know wh- whatever the whatever the example is and you know to to come out um, on the other side and it also gives you a real appreciation you know of the good times you know, as well, you know, because, you know, I, I went through and, you know, I'm not a, alone in this. There are plenty of other people out there who've gone through their own suffering. I I suffered quite a bit. But that suffering was necessary for me to, to, to embark on a journey to get better and to come out on the other side and to appreciate, you know, life um, you know, within itself. And um, you know, you, you can't you can't have one without the the mm. the opposite, so to speak. You know, mm. you, you you can't have happiness, you know, without sadness or, you know, um, you know, you can't, you know, I'm, 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 what, what I've got right now as I've, I've touched on with my partner and my kids, like, you know, I'm in a completely vulnerable position in a sense because, you know, that potentially could get taken all the way from me yeah. mm. but and I would be left in a horrible position. Mm. But it is worth it a hundred times over because of the, what, the, what I'm experiencing you know, right now. So if you don't want to, you know, and I guess, you know, if you don't want to, you know, feel sadness or if you don't want to feel hurt or if you don't want to feel any of those negative emotions, so to speak, then, you know, it's, you can shut yourself off. You can put yourself, you know, you can you can choose not to be in vulnerable positions, but you choose to shut yourself off to all the great mm-hmm. emotions,
1: happiness,
2: joy, um, you know, catharticism, you know, uh, you know whatever the good emotion is so um you know that's been a a, a real learning experience um for me as well
0: Mm -hmm. and that's what we've learned through doing this podcast is that life is just a paradox you know there's there's no pain without pleasure Mm -hmm. and there's you know it's 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 so layered um Mm -hmm. and i I think that you know i want to thank you brock um for for coming on and yeah um, it's been
1: amazing brock yeah Thank you no. so much. Yeah.
0: Thank no. Thanks
2: for having me. And um, you know, it's it's still it's still very therapeutic for me to talk about. You know, and I, I went through a period after I opened up. You know, publicly that I, I went on the podcast. You know, sort of trial and you know, I haven't done one for a while. So it's it's again, it's nice to you know to talk about it. You know, if it helps one person, then it's been then it's been a good thing. So you know, good on you guys for, for doing what you're doing as as well, because you know you're bringing you know a lot of serious issues and helping, I guess, unmask you know, a lot of the, the common misconceptions about mental health, about eating disorders. Um, you know, Thanks for having me on and, and good on you guys for doing what you're doing.
0: Thanks for listening to our episode with Brock McLean. If any of our audience has any reflections or thoughts on our episode, please feel free to leave a message or DM us on our Instagram just found it at Making Sense of Chaos alternatively you can leave a review on either Spotify or iTunes it really helps our channel being seen and um, we just appreciate that immensely thank you